Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, if you had asked people about 15 years ago who Alan Turing was, they'd have looked at you a bit blankly and probably said, oh, maybe he was a defender for Partick Thistle or, or some sort of Scottish football team. You know, it wasn't a sort of household name, but now there seems to be no getting away from Alan Turing. He's been the subject of a, this hit movie, The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Countless books written about him, documentaries, and he's even about to appear on the new £50 note. So, I mean, he'll soon be in your pocket if, if, you, if you carry 50s around, which I don't. Anyway, everybody now thinks they kind of know his story, or at least they think they know his story. And to summarise it, the story is pretty much this. OK, here goes. Socially awkward, gay genius single-handedly manages to crack the Nazi enigma code and thereby knocks years off the war and saves millions of lives. Along the way, he invents the computer and for thanks, he gets arrested for being gay, forced to take hormone pills, is abandoned by the evil establishment and then he commits suicide. I think that's kind of what people think in a nutshell. That's the kind of take-home story from the movie. And it's a really tragic story, that story. And of course... Turing's victimhood for his sexuality feels like a, a sort of very modern morality tale, if you like, and it plays in very well with our sort of obsession for these themes. And as a result, I think Turing has become an icon, and his story is a story for our times, maybe as well as his, because it you know reflects these questions of victimhood and marginalisation and sexuality. However, my guest on the podcast today has a somewhat different take on Alan Turing. He says, and I quote, that the standard narrative is largely wrong and that he was really no war hero. And actually it gets even more controversial because my guest also has little time for Turing being defined by his sexuality and says that his death was unrelated to the hormone treatment imposed on him. In fact, he says that the whole story has become a kind of morality myth, this myth in which, quote, evil forces drive an innocent victim into an abyss of despair. Now, you may wonder who this person is. How dare he tear down this national icon? The cheek of it, you might think. Well, he's called Dermot Turing. Now, that surname means, yes, that he's related. He is the nephew of Alan Turing. And he has just published this superb book, which I read in the sun yesterday and got sunburnt. Um, and it's called Reflections of Alan Turing, A Relative Story. Dermot, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for your introduction. Not at all, not at all. I really enjoyed the book. It's great. I did get some burnt because I did forget to put some sun cream on So because I was really enjoying it. So thank you. Anyway, look, if I'm being proper, Dermot, I should really be calling you Sir Dermot. So why, why are you Sir Dermot? And can you tell me just a little bit about the Turing family? I don't want to go at great length about this, but it's just nice for, for listeners to get a feel as to who you are. OK, well, I'm going to disappoint all your listeners immediately because, of course, most people who are called Sir Somebody Something in Britain have actually done something to earn their title, <laughs> and most of them are knighthoods. In my case, it's one of those odd relics of ancient history where it's uh, handed down as a sort of family heirloom. It's a very strange thing. It's not a peerage, so I don't get to sit in the House of Lords, but it is, it is inherited, and it started out back in the times of the uh, Stuart, when the Stuarts were on the throne. So it really is, it really is a very old piece of nonsense. <laughs> well, it's quite nice. Anyway. I mean, it's a baronetcy, presumably, so it's quite nice to have, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is, yes. You lot, I mean, so the Turing's, are, I mean, you know, you're quite a posh family, aren't you? Would that be fair to say? Um, well, I, do, I don't, th um, I don't sort of see myself as being particularly posh, but uh, um, perhaps 
you know, middle class sort of professional backgrounds. I mean, if you go back into uh, the family history, you'll find that there are lots of sort of impecunious vicars and uh, quite a few <laughs> merchants scattered around various parts of the world. So it's not, I mean, I wouldn't wish to sort of claim, as some people do, some sort of badge of honour of having emerged from some sort of grimy background through the strength of my own achievements. Um, it's more sort of stolid middle of the road not super achieving not super poor all the way through really <laughs> come on well, I, you're being very modest you're being very modest i'm sure and if you just google derbert turing you will see a website full of your amazing achievements so anyway i'm going to leave it at that because i know it's not it's not about you and i actually that family background i have to say incidentally sounds very similar to mine with impecunious vicars public schools here and there uh, you know, army officers and, and quite a lot of going out to empire and, and, and doing bits and pieces on the subcontinent. But I think that so but it gives us a sort of sense of where your uncle, Alan Turing, was from. He was from this sort of you know, professional, sort of somewhat posh, but not mega posh background. And I suppose the first question is, is was he this kind of weird kid who sorted his vegetables into different colours? Was he this kind of Asperger's autistic type of child or was he just socially normal and not as awkward as it's made out. You're referring to a scene from the Imitation Game movie where Alan Turing is at school and he's trying to sort his peas and his carrots and gets yeah. sort of basically bullied for having having done that. I have not the first idea where that scene came from. Well, I do. I think it came from the imagination of the scriptwriter. Um, <laughs> let's face it, Alan Turing at school was... Um, I mean, he was probably a bit of an unusual kid because... Um, he wasn't particularly enthusiastic about sports. It doesn't mean he was a disaster, but he wasn't enthusiastic about them. Right. And he was somebody who was interested in science. And back in the 1920s, when he was at school, science was something that was really sort of on the fringes of what was normal for the school curriculum. And the fact that he wanted to go off and sort of do his own experiments and sort of cook up foul-smelling things was kind of interesting to the other kids, but you can imagine that it wasn't to everybody's taste. Yes. <laughs> I don't get the sense that he got bullied for any of that. I mean, public schools in the 1920s were... I've, I've described them as robust, which people will recognise is a bit euphemistic, but uh, um, I don't think many of us these days would cope terribly well in those kinds of environments. So I'm not going to say that it was all cuddly and cushy it wasn't like that but I think he coped okay with it I don't think he was particularly a victim during that time um, and where this business about sort of this quasi autistic behavior of sorting vegetables and getting picked on because he was doing that I have no idea where that came from it just doesn't chime with the kind of I mean, let me let me just give you a little story about Alan at, at school, which I which I find quite fun. There's a story that he and I've actually seen this thing. He was really completely terrible at Latin, and um, there was a remedial class for the students who were bad at Latin. You had to be good at Latin because you couldn't go to university if you didn't have a Latin school certificate. So there was a remedial class, and he eventually by dint of the Latin master's efforts, managed to scrape a pass in Latin, which was, you know, what was needed. Two years later, when he was working for his A-levels, I won't call that in those days, doesn't matter. Yes. He was invited to write a little piece for the 
magazine for the remedial Latin class. And this is Alan Turing's first published mathematical formula. And it tells you how many credits you're going to get in your Latin exam based on the number of iced buns you eat, how many whacks you've been given by the uh, headmaster, <laughs> by the Latin master, the angle at which the bog brush that was being used to give the whacks was applied to the backside, and so forth. It's absolute hoot. And, you know, this is... This is supposed to be some kid who is, you know, just has no normal human yeah, relations. No. It just doesn't chime to me. Uh, I mean, the <laughs> fact that I, 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 I genuinely chuckle at that, I mean, you know, clearly this is someone who knows how to connect with people. He's got a sense of humour. I suppose that being into science, if you're a part of the sort of ruling classes, schools at that time was probably considered a little bit unusual. There is always this sort of come up sort of upper class, upper middle class distaste for, for science, isn't there? <laughs> but it uh, would have made him a slight outlier, but it certainly wouldn't have made him kind of socially shunned, awkward or, or, or the weird kid. I mean, that's that's the sort of seductive narrative, isn't it? You know, weird kid turns out to do genius thing. I mean, it's just not really the case, is it? Well, what you're talking about, and, and you made this very clear in your introduction, is that somehow we've been lured into a narrative of victimhood around Alan Turing. And so yeah. the movie sets that up very nicely, if that's what you want to achieve, by beginning with his boyhood and sort of being bullied at school and that kind of thing. And it just creates this whole sort of atmosphere of Alan Turing the victim throughout the whole whole movie. And uh, we're just sort of seduced by it. It, it fits very nicely with that story of... Uh, what happened towards the end of his life. And I, I do want to come on to this whole idea of projecting our obsessions, if you like, onto your uncle and indeed other figures. But I, just before we get there, I don't want to do a whole kind of potted biography of him because I think that it's important that people read your book in order to have this fantastic corrective. And I don't think the purpose today is just to, you know, to run through his life. So we'll skate over the fact clearly he went to Cambridge and was you know pretty good at being a student there. But at Bletchley, what what does he actually do at Bletchley? Because you know, I you know, people think that he single-handedly cracked the German Enigma code and thereby kind of saved millions of lives and saved the war. Could you could you just tell me briefly exactly what he did and how single-handedly that was achieved? Well, let's begin with single-handed. By um, January 1945, there were over 9,000 people working at Bletchley Park. Alan Turing was not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, so, so that's a bit of a, a myth, sort of exploded, isn't it? So, yeah. to be sort of le less abrupt about it, Alan Turing joined Bletchley Park the day that the war broke out, but he had actually been informally working for them on the Enigma problem behind the scenes for a month or two. Right. And he had got the benefit by the end of July 1939 of the fruits of a meeting that took place with the Polish codebreakers in Warsaw where the Polish codebreakers told the British all they knew about the Enigma machine and their own uh, techniques for solving the problem of how the Enigma machine was set up every day and they handed that information to Alan Turing and as a consequence of that he was able to start work on his own machine solution which is the thing that people have seen in the movie um, it wasn't called Christopher, sorry to disappoint you. Um, <laughs> and uh, he uh, then was able to conjure up this souped up 
machine design and put it into the hands of the engineers no later than October of 1939. So really, really early in the war. Right. And that machine, did it have a name, that machine at the time? That machine's called the Bomb Machine. If anybody's yeah. really interested, you should go to the National Museum of Computing at Bletchley Park, where there's a full-size millimetre perfect replica of the thing, which they'll do demos for you and tell you exactly how it works to break Enigma. And, and you know, I mean, it's a great thing to watch. But anyway, sorry. That, um, yeah, no, the, no point is that, that the prototype of that machine was delivered to Bletchley Park by Easter time of 1940, so before the British had actually got themselves into a proper fighting war. Got it. So this is a bit of a different timeline from what you see in the movie, isn't it? Which is yeah. sort of where it's months and months, of possibly years of sweated labour. Now, that doesn't mean that when the prototype was delivered, the problem was solved and we could all sort of go and retire and yes, Alan Turing could go off yeah. and sort of work on his theorems again. It wasn't quite like that. But frankly, by the time we've got to mid-1942, he has exhausted his contribution to code-breaking and so they redeploy him on essentially cipher security, which is a completely different problem. They send him up the road to a different establishment called Hanslope Park, which is still a secret government establishment. I'm told that Hanslope Park is where the effectively the modern day Q division um, of uh, MI6 produces its funky gadgets. I don't know whether that's true, but it's fun if it is. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, so this is this is a very different narrative. <laughs> yes, but, you know, I mean, it's great. So, yes, his machine was an amazing contribution and it had a huge influence on the war. And I don't don't decry that in any sense, but it wasn't single handed. He was a member of a team working on the problem. He wasn't the engineer doing the engineering work, which required a completely different skill set from what he had. And we've sort of somehow funneled the whole achievement in of Bletchley Park, which is an amazing thing into a narrative about a single individual. And I think he would have been offended about that. Um, and it's kind of unfair to the other folks. Yeah, well, can we just name a couple of the other folks? Um, I mean, they, they, they appear in your book, but there's Knox, isn't there? He, for starters. So Diddy Knox, even more eccentric than Alan Turing. Um, he's um, <laughs> the first British codebreaker to try and tackle the Enigma problem. And he actually solved it, but for a different version of the Enigma machine than the one the Germans were using. So no one's heard of him, right? I mean, I, mean, I know they have, but I mean, no, no, mo most people haven't heard of him. I mean, if you, and, and no, no one either um, has heard of John Tiltman, have they? I mean, you know. No, so John Tiltman and Diddy Knox in succession were the chief cryptographer at Bletchley Park, which is the most senior codebreaking position uh, available and these guys could break anything. I mean, Tiltman was amazing. He could break, you know, he didn't, he spoke a few languages, but not vast numbers, but he could break a cipher in any language, you know, you, you name. So, I mean, he was doing Japanese, Russian, you know, you name it. He was, he was an incredible guy. Wow. And then when he retired from GCHQ, um, the Americans snapped him up and he went to work for the NSA in retirement. So um, he, he's, he's, <laughs> he's a fairly significant guy. These are sort of unsung heroes. And Dilly Knox, of course, Knox dies during the war, doesn't he? So that sort of, um, sort of yeah. scuppers any chance of, sort of his reputation getting greater. So And then Turing then ends up, I mean, he leaves Bletchley and he goes to the States as well, doesn't he, at some point? Yes, yeah, so in that 1942-43 transition period, he went over to the US to help the Americans who were building their own 
souped up version of Alan Turing's bomb with electronic components is a pretty amazing thing. The Americans have still got the only surviving bomb machine, the only original surviving bomb machine of World War II. They have it at the Cryptologic Museum just outside Fort Meade, Maryland. So people want to go and visit that. It's a, that's an amazing thing. So he went to help them with that and also to work on some secret allied encipherment devices so you know how you how you actually send messages securely oh so on the other side of the table if you like yeah yeah so if we take stock so you know he's not a weird kid he's socially normal he has made a significant and big contribution at bletchley but you know it, he's part of a team he's 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 a really essential component clearly i wouldn't want to sometimes it's very tempting to sort of they go too far the other way and say actually he wasn't that important he was important let's face it yeah that's fair enough to say yeah yeah no that, that's absolutely right i mean i don't want don't want to sort of try and belittle what he did i think it was amazing but it's kind of, we, we just need to keep it in proportion. <laughs> so wh- where do we get this idea that he invented the computer or modern computing? What is the source of that? Well, now, I think that that's the thing where, before anybody knew about Bletchley Park, that was what he was famous for. And uh, I mean, obviously in a sort of rather more limited way than he is now. So this story starts in the pre-war years where he came up with a theoretical concept, which was basically a, a way of thinking about mathematics in a sort of a fresh way Um, and he was thinking about mechanical processes uh, involving long paper tape that you print ones and noughts on and the idea that you could program the machine that processed this tape to do different things and that was quite a revolutionary idea that the function of the machine could change according to the instructions it was given um, these days, we don't think of that as being particularly innovative, but uh, back in the 1930s, it was a quite extraordinary idea. So I think that's where the idea of the programmable computer came from. And then coupling that with his knowledge of machinery that he picked up along the way at Bletchley Park, you find that he's the person selected by the National Physical Laboratory in 1945 to work on the design of Britain's electronic computing machine, singular. We knew we needed a computer. (laughs) The country's computer. (laughs) (laughs) We needed one. There was a debate as to whether it would be sensible to have two because then you could have a backup one in case the computer failed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the whole idea of backup starting as well. (laughs) (laughs) But it was very expensive, so I think they decided one was enough. (laughs) So this, 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 fair enough. That's always a mistake, people, listeners. Always buy, always back up. So the idea that he is he is partly responsible. One of the people, one of the founding fathers of modern computing. I think we we can say that's that's valid. Yeah, no, I, I think, I, I mean, I think that's dead cool, actually. But um, Yeah, fair uh, enough. That's so... all right. I'd be pretty proud of my uncle had done that. <laughs> um, so, and, I mean, so after the war, that's basically what he's involved in. And obviously, sadly, he doesn't have long to live. So he's only got a few years of, of, of more work left in him. Um, so, but what is the, the question of his sexuality? Is, is this... Does this feel important in whatever written stuff you you as a family have, or is there is there the the idea that he he wasn't you know sexually conventional and more is the time was was that something that was made great play of or any great sort of stock set in it? No, 
<laughs> no, I'm glad you asked, actually, because so many times you hear about Alan Turing, I sort of listen to stuff on the radio or whatever, and people say yeah. he was uh, he's amazing because he was openly gay. It's nonsense. I don't know where people got the idea that he was openly gay from. The fact is that in 1952, so at this point, Alan is 40 years old. Um, my father's a bit older than that. Alan Turing gets prosecuted for gross indecency, and we all know about that. My father yes. got the letter because that's the way that people communicated back in back in those days. Mm. Uh, the computer the couldn't quite manage an email at that point. Really. <laughs> yeah, the computer development hadn't quite got that far. Um, so he read this letter over the breakfast table, and the first sentence of the letter was, "I'm sure you must know that I am homosexual." And my father said, "I had absolutely no idea. This is this guy's older brother. He doesn't know that his brother doesn't is know. is gay, yeah. uh, and his brother is forty years old." So. Right. It's not so much that people were uh, being sort of coy about their sexuality. It was just dangerous. I think this is the point that people just don't don't understand because it was criminal behavior. People thought it was disgusting. They thought it was socially mm. perverted. And attitudes have changed so much since then that uh, we we sort of forget that this was how society viewed this kind of thing. So it was just very unwise to be openly gay uh, in in those days and and i think that that kind of underscores the tragedy of it all when we realize that the early 1950s constituted what i hesitate to use the word but let's let's say it anyway um a pogrom against gay men going on in the yeah. early 1950s absolutely so, I mean, horrendous by our modern values but that's what was happening but there's also this sense, of course, that he's abandoned by the establishment because he's gay and he's therefore sort of you know, socially shunned and they don't help him when it comes to trial. But this is all nonsense, isn't it? Because I think I think you make the point very elegantly in the book that um, that actually colleagues come forward to defend him and say, now wrong with him, so to speak. Well, uh, so, I mean, this is really quite interesting. So. It, it depends what you're trying to sort of say when you say that he was abandoned by the state. Sure, there was this, definitely there was this sort of state pogrom against gay people. The police were instructed to go off and round up as many gays as they could get their hands on. And Alan Turing was just sort of swept up in that that whole kind of clean-up operation. I mean, oh, that's terrible, and don't try and make any apology for that. But... You're right that when it comes to the actual details of his particular personal case, then all the other gay men, and again, we tend to sort of home in on the fact that Alan Turing was tried, and we forget that there were loads of other cases before the judge on the same day in the same courtroom. Uh, on the whole, the pattern was that if you were, particularly if you're the older man in the relationship, you were going to go to jail. If you were lucky, you might get let off with a fine. But you'd certainly end up with a criminal record and lose your job. Right. The legal team representing Alan Turing were very keen to try and ensure that didn't happen to him. And we find that we've got character witnesses coming forward to speak for Alan Turing, and they're coming from GCHQ. This is kind of Britain's most secret establishment is willing to field somebody to speak up in his defence and to say what he'd done during the war. And we've got another ex-Bletchley Park person who's Max Newman, who's currently Alan Turing's boss at Manchester University, saying he's working on this vital work on the electronic brain. You can't, you can't 
do anything to this guy. He's kind of like uh, essential for the uh, future yeah. of the country. This is kind of like not, doesn't feel to me like being abandoned by the state. And the co- outcome is that the judge is persuaded not to send Alan Turing to prison, not to give him a fine, let him off with probation, which means that he doesn't get a criminal record, keeps his job. And that looks to me like a pretty good outcome. Hold on, he, he doesn't get a criminal record. Yeah, so he didn't. So, so this kind of probation, as it was in those days, avoided you having a formal criminal record. I think the idea was that if you got to the end of your probation, then the record was sort of wiped clean. I think that was the, that was the right. idea. So he was never convicted of indecency or indecent acts or anything like that. He was well, he was convicted, but then because he was put on probation, then it's sort of like... We'll take like, it away if you're good. I so think the good. criminal laws evolved a bit since, since yeah. then. So it's sort of a bit more like a sort of halfway house in, in, in yeah, those days. Okay. Well, you, you, you'll get the full punishment if you don't behave. Yeah, it's actually, exactly. So, and then he's put on this hormone therapy, the word therapy, I suppose, should be in inverted commas. And then, of course, the kind of the, the myth, if you like, is, 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 is that treatment will lead to his suicide. And again, there are some very firmly raised Dermot Turing eyebrows about that. Well, yes, you're right. Um, so we've got a two year period between uh, conviction and his suicide. The hormone, open quotes, treatment, close quotes, which is mm. some bonkers idea, not cooked up by the judge, I hasten to say, but cooked up by the medics, was of one year's duration. And so they're finished, therefore finished in 1953. Yeah. And we don't have much. So, I mean, I have to be a little bit careful about what I say I've got I've read all the stuff that I can and um, I formed an opinion on it but it's only my opinion and somebody uh, you know people are entitled to take a different view but my opinion is that Alan Turing's mood and sort of general sense of well-being and what these days we call mental health doesn't come across from his surviving letters as being depressed or uh, in any sense sort of driven down by what's happened to him this is borne out as well by a new cache of letters that turned up at Manchester University uh, a few years back which is basically his office correspondence file and and you do get a strong sense of Alan Turing's mood from those letters even though it's sort of boring admin stuff that he's he's corresponding mm. about but you can you can get a sense as to when he's down because he cancels uh, going to uh, conferences and stuff and when he's not down he's not doing that kind of thing and he's engaging enthusiastically with his fellow academics about this and that um so i don't get the sense that there's uh any particular long-lasting depression going on there. There was one particular incident in 1953, so not the year of his trial, not the year of his death, the middle year. In the middle of 1953, he suffers really quite badly because the police are handing him again. Right. um, And that seems to me to be perfectly reasonable. You go around, cancel all your engagements, and uh, you feel feel pretty down for a few weeks when, when that that's happening to you. But that's a that's a sort of a dip in a otherwise an overall reasonably even kind of thing and and the other thing you get from the correspondence and this is from his private correspondence is that he's deeply relieved when the uh, hormone implant comes out in 1953 
and he's talking about sort of settling down and how sort of life's back to normal and it's kind of all very upbeat frankly so i struggle to find a causal link between this absurd and inhuman treatment that he was subjected to and the reasons why he might have taken his own life in 1954 i just i just can't piece the you know the the string stops there's no there's no there's no, yeah. no, no connecting sure. factor okay. and, then, <laughs> and, it, and i think and i think you're you're very you're, you're very fair when you say that this is this is your you know, your opinion as far as you can tell but you've, you've looked at everything you've read everything and you've, you've thought about it deeply and i think that it's yeah, it is seductive to say that he, he he was the victim of this treatment and he was a victim of, of, you know, what the sort of big evil state and evil forces were throwing against him. And of course, yes, if the police are hounding you, you're going to feel a bit of that. And there is, of course, there is some element of, there's a kernel of truth to this myth, isn't there, a little bit? But Well, I think people should be forgiven for th um, falling into this trap because when I started looking into it, that's what I had assumed was the case. And so I went and looked for evidence that this kind of hormone treatment that he'd been put on had an impact on mental health, depression, um, you know, suicidal tendencies and all that kind of thing. I couldn't find anything which was quite, quite interesting. I've even talked to some patients who've been put for much more legitimate medical reasons than bonkers 1950s yeah. sort of social <laughs> engineering um, on onto this kind of treatment um and i mean okay so this is anecdotal it's not scientific but it, it helps bear out the idea that frankly there isn't much connection between uh, at least a physiological connection between being put on this kind of uh, medication and your mental state so um uh, so i mean i thought that that was quite interesting and then i started having to inquire of my own self whether i was following a false lead or not okay so i i mean i think that people can can read more of, of that in the book but i just want to finish off today by just sort of looking at this big picture of this kind of back projection if you like on of our sort of obsessions onto figures like your uncle and obviously uh people may have seen the film with kate winslet or about the female fossil hunter mary anning and she is turned into a lesbian and, and there is no evidence to support the fact that she was a lesbian and and of course that you know, clearly plays into this idea of victimhood and 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 someone who has kind of done something brilliant for a state and for a country which you know punishes him rather than thanks him so i, I think that this is do, do you feel a kind of sense of anger about this dermot that that actually your uncle your family member your your father's younger brother is being held up as this kind of poster boy for causes that he probably would not have felt comfortable championing I certainly feel uh, it, it's less uh, a case of anger than a case of sort of missed opportunity in, in some sense, because I think where we find ourselves with Alan Turing is looking back at him in a sort of slightly complacent and to my mind slightly unattractive way where we sort of pat ourselves on the back for having won World War Two by dint of sort of British superior intellectual genius. Um, and then we can pat ourselves on the back again because we now know we've moved along such a long way that we now treat gay people much more sensibly and humanely and uh, so we can feel sort of very comfortable about ourselves. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and, I, and, and that seems to me to be 
Well, something that uh, I suspect that Alan Turing himself would have been uh, found somewhat disagreeable, particularly if he's being held up as the sort of poster boy for all this stuff. But let's think about what he would have wanted his legacy to be. And I think it would have been rather different. I suspect if you think about what Alan Turing worked on for his whole life, he was doing this really sort of cutting edge in some people thought it was like pure science fiction fantasy stuff like talking about machine learning uh, and talking about um, uh, pattern formation in plants and animals and this kind of uh, forward-looking computing machinery for philosophical debate on whether um, machines could actually take the place of human beings and in what senses they could you know and, and all that kind of stuff not just the code breaking I mean great but uh, but all these other things absolutely fascinating sort of forward-looking stuff questions to which we haven't yet got answers um, even seven, 60 70 years on I think that probably shows us what Alan Turing's legacy really ought to be about it ought to be about the future it ought to be about kids having opportunities to study STEM subjects. It ought to be us asking ourselves difficult questions about why women are underrepresented in computer science and why black kids are underrepresented doing science A-levels. You know, these kinds of things, I think that's what the agenda really ought to be. I like the idea of, of leaving it now on a sense of uh, discomfort. I, I think you're right. Let's not, let's not feel comfortable about it. Let's not, you know, you know lapse into this, this easy morality tale. Dermot, thank you so much indeed for coming along today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And your book is called Reflections of Alan Turing, A Relative Story, and that's by Dermot Turing. And it's, it, 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 you know, if you're listening to this podcast in 100 years' time, I'm sure the book will still be in print. Dermot, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for today. If you've enjoyed this podcast and, and all the others, I hope that you are now beginning to subscribe to us and leaving us nice reviews. You can find us on either Apple Podcasts, Google or Spotify. And you can connect with Mail Plus on Twitter, at Mail Plus. And you can also connect with me there, at Guy Walters. In the meantime, many thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>